those things. Father, I pray that as we study the book of Amos, that you would just bless this time, uh, this study. And, and these are books here uh, of the Bible that oftentimes get ignored, uh, that uh, are not um, spoken of. Um, uh, even in our devotions, we can skip these books, uh, in, certainly behind the pulpit. Uh, as we gather corporately, but Lord, we desire to, to know all of your word, the whole counsel of God's word, and it is for our benefit. And Lord, as we study uh, the words uh, that you would pass through this prophet, um, that you would just touch our hearts and remind us of the consequences of sin and leading a life uh, that is carnal, leading a life that uh, is not pleasing to you and what sin does. So, Lord, um, we just open our hearts to you right now, uh, to your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Amos was a, a fearless man that would bring a very difficult message, God's message, to the house of Israel. And he was a man that was a farmer. He was a sheep herder. And he is now being used of God to be a prophet. And Amos, his name means burden bearer. And once again, God raises up just an ordinary individual to give an extraordinary message that is his word to a nation. And he was one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Let's read that as we read in verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's interesting. So here is Tekoa, just south of Jerusalem. It was near Bethlehem. And we also are going to learn that Amos was a fig picker. There, there was a way that they would pick the figs to be able to produce them for food and in a very special way, and we'll look at that as we continue. But as we go through the books of First and Second Kings, the historical books of the Old Testament, and First and Second Chronicles, there's no mention of Amos by name. Now, there is Amos, A-M-O-Z. Don't confuse Amos here, the prophet, with him. But we know that this book is the only mention of Amos. He was not from, it seems, from one of the schools of the prophets mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 20 and 2 Kings chapter 2. As you read about the, the school of prophets under Elisha, um, and uh, as we know that uh, prophets were being raised up, uh, he's not mentioned as being a part of that group. But here's a man that he lived a life and worked in the land and herding sheep and, and breeding sheep. And God called him to ministry for a very specific message. And I just want to remind us all once again that whatever it is that you do in life, whether here in Weld County is we live in an agricultural area, that whether you work the land or work out in the oil fields or you are a nurse in the hospitals or uh, in a medical clinic, a school teacher, uh, whether you're a mom at home raising your kids, whatever that, uh, that you do, wherever God has placed you, know this, that he wants to use you as well. He wants to use you and me, all of us, where we are planted to give the message of the Lord, the message of the gospel to others. So here is Amos. He's going to give um, a message. He's going to travel north to Bethel to give this word to the northern nation, the ten northern tribes of Israel. Bethel, as you know in our studies, as you go through the book of Genesis, uh, where Jacob 
called that place where he had that vision of the angels ascending and descending uh, from the ladder. He said, God was here and I did not know it. So he called it Bethel, which means the house of God. And as we saw last time, as we are particularly going through the book of uh, Hosea just a few weeks ago, that uh, it had been turned the name from Bethel to Beth Haven, which means the house of idols. And the reason was is because when the ten northern tribes broke away from uh, the house of Judah. After Solomon, Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes rebelled. They broke away. And the first king was Jeroboam. That is the first. And Jeroboam had set up two places of idol worship, up in Dan and then in Bethel to worship the golden calf because he didn't want the people to go to Jerusalem to worship there at Solomon's temple, that beautiful temple, because he was afraid then the nations would want to come together and, you know, and it wouldn't benefit him. But so he sets up idol worship, which the 10 northern tribes, as most of you know, there was a series of 19 kings until they would go off into captivity by the Assyrians. And every one of those kings were idol worshipers. So uh, the nation at this time is plunged deep into idol worship. They have the golden calf there at Beth Avon, which was at one time Bethel, the house of God. And we know from the, the historical time frame that Amos is prophesying. It is told to us here during Uzziah, king of Judah, and then Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam the second king of Israel. And it was a time, as, as we've discussed this before, that brought expansion to both of those nations. Both Judah and the house of Israel were doing well at this time. The Assyrians were declining for a short time during this time, and Judah was expanding to the west into Philistine territory over to the coast of Mediterranean, and then the Ammonites to the east. And so it was Uzziah who was a great king. He was king for 52 years. He was a, a one that came up with uh, technology, with agriculture. Uh, he was one that w was an inventor of, of weaponry, you know, in those days. He was a good, solid, strong king. He fortified the cities of Judah. So Judah's doing very well in expanding to the east in his political influence was felt as far as Egypt as well. So Uzziah was uh, a strong king, but then Israel also, the ten northern tribes, were at the height of their power and it were expanding up into Syria. So it was a time of military strength. It was a time of economic prosperity as well. But we know, as we have discussed, as we've gone through the books of the prophets, that during this time that spiritually... Uh, that things were not well, particularly with the house of Israel, um, that they were spiritually, um, they were headed towards disaster. And that's why Amos is bringing the word of the Lord to try to avert that, that judgment's going to come. Because remember that God had made a covenant with his people there at Mount Sinai, that if you follow after me, I'm going to bless you and bless the land. But if you don't, then um, here are the curses that are described there in the book of Deuteronomy. And we've talked about this quite extensively as we've been going through the Old Testament here and through the books of the prophet. So Amos is given a warning for the Lord and uh, from the Lord to the nation to turn back to him. So for a period, for probably about a year, Amos stops with his trade of a shepherd and he goes to give God's message to the northern nation of Israel. Uh, ministering two years before, isn't it interesting, as we read in verse 1 here, before the earthquake. 
Now it's interesting also that um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, connects the quake, uh, the earthquake, with the events of Second Chronicles chapter 26, when Uzziah was struck with leprosy. So Uzziah was a godly king. He started out well. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't end well. And Uzziah, even though he was a strong leader, what happened was that for some reason he decides to go into the temple and to burn incense in the holy place. The kings were not allowed to do that. Only the priests were allowed to go into the temple. So as he does that, as he's burning incense, I believe there's 80 priests that came in as we read those accounts there in Second uh, Chronicle and told him, you can't do this, Uzziah. You are the king. Uh, this is not the place. Only the priests are allowed to come into the temple and to burn incense. And Uzziah, in his stubbornness, said, I'm going to do this. And he was struck with leprosy. So some, you know, rabbinical history tells us that, that because of what Uzziah did, two years later, there was this earthquake. And so we do know that excavations give evidence of an earthquake around 760 B.C. So this time frame of Amos fits perfectly uh, as he is prophesying. So these prophecies are coming 2,700 years ago, and uh, they are coming um, before the captivity of Assyria, of the ten northern tribes that happened in 722 B.C., and so other prophets that would be on the scene during this time, a contemporary of, of Amos here is um, Hosea, that we went through his book. And Amos' message is one of judgment and ends with the message of hope. And you see, that's what we're to do. As we read these books, as we go through the minor prophets, there's a lot of judgment. And, it, and we can think so much judgment, judgment, judgment. But always keep in mind, there is a message of hope. And even with Hosea, and I think that probably Amos and Hosea, I wonder if they knew each other, uh, but they had a consistent message of the Lord. And, and Hosea really shows us the heart of the Lord, how brokenhearted he was over the condition of the nation. And, and Hosea, uh, speaking the words of the Lord, the Lord saying, how can I give you up, O Ephraim, the ten northern tribes? And, and here Amos gives a message of hope, and we do as well. Because the gospel, there is good news. But before people receive the good news, they need to understand the bad news, and that is that we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and, and the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. Here's the hope that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he went to the cross to die for you. And you don't have to be separated from God for eternity. You have a living hope. There is the hope of eternity with him, heaven, as you come and repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. So we always have that message of hope that we give to others. We continue here in verse 2 of chapter 1. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And so the roar of the Lord speaks of God's judgment. First he will speak of the judgment of the nations and then of the house of Israel. It is kind of in reverse order of what the other prophets, because even as we went through Isaiah and Jeremiah and and uh, the, as we went through um, Ezekiel, uh, they, they would be, give these proclamations of the nations. And they would do that um, after they would bring, you know, that message to the house of Israel. Here it's kind of reverse order. Um, we see that the judgment of the nations are given first and then the house of Israel. 
So at the top of Mount Carmel, of course, there is that mountain range in northern Israel. In our trips to Israel, we have gone to that mountain, Mount Carmel, where Elijah called down fire from heaven. But Mount Carmel is a very lush place, a very fertile place. You look down into the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Megiddo. I love being there. You look over to the west, and there's the Mediterranean Sea. And, and you look over to the east, and there's Bethlehem, the mountains of Samaria. It's one of my favorite spots in, in all of the world, actually, but in Israel. And here at the top of Mount Carmel will wither. It's probably speaking of drought and famine, perhaps. In verse 3 is the judgment of the nations. These proclamations are given. We do read that thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria should go captive to Ker, says the Lord. So as we read this, we're going to see that there's this, this um, uh, expression that uh, is uh, an Old Testament expression, a Hebrew expression of three transgressions, uh, three transgressions of Damascus and for the fourth. And Old Testament scholars say uh, this is like saying three and four, three plus four, a poetic term for seven sins, seven transgressions as you add up three and you add up four. So the use of a number uh, here uh, and then the next higher number that follows is that expression that, that is believed to be given here for three sins, every, even for four, expressing the completeness of the number seven. We know from uh, the scriptures that seven is, symbolizes uh, completeness. They're going to be judged for their complete sin. And we'll, uh, as we go through these nations here, it's interesting that one sin a transgression is mentioned to the nations, but when he begins to indict the house of Israel, he's going to mention seven of them. So as we read this first one against Damascus, of course, Damascus is the capital of Syria, even is today. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, um, declared that Damascus is the oldest continuous city. That is, that is a city that's never been destroyed and rebuilt, uh, and it's been around for you know, over 4,000 years. Uh, and as Damascus uh, is mentioned oftentimes, a judgment against it here, I think that this first judgment against the Syrians as Damascus being the capital, I think was born out of what transpires. You can write in your notes and you can read it in, uh, as you continue your study through Amos. But in 2 Kings chapter 8, in verses 7 through 15, 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 through 15, Elijah was the prophet at this time, and he was prophesying to the ten northern um, you know, tribes, the house of Israel. And Elijah, he followed Elijah, not to be confused with Elijah. Elijah comes along, takes the mantle of the prophet from him. And as he's the prophet, Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. And Ben-Hadad, he became sick. 
Ben-Hadad who is uh, mentioned here and the one who holds the scepter from Beth uh, Eden here. Um, and uh, as we see here uh, that um, the people of Syria should go captive to Ker. And, and in verse 4, uh, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. So he's mentioned specifically here He's the king of Syria. He becomes sick. So he sends one of his top men, Haziel, to go and to speak to uh, Elijah if, to see if he would recover from this illness or if he was going to die, which I find interesting as well because, you know, here is the king of Syria. Why is he going to, you know, a source uh, that is, you know, uh, from God who he doesn't believe in and will not submit to? But when he gets sick, he go to the man of God, see if he's going to die. Um, just kind of uh, interesting how uh, he's thinking. He doesn't turn to his own God or the God of Syria's or the Canaanite gods. He turns to Elijah. So Hazai goes and inquires of Elijah. And you read in Second Kings chapter 8 that Elijah said to him in verse 10, Go to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. As you read that verse in 2 Kings chapter 8, you think, sounds like double talk. Uh, But it's not, because Elijah, as he said this, he begins to stare at Haziel, who came in and inquired of him. And and Elijah, his eyes are fixed on him. He kind of goes into this stare. He begins to weep, and Haziel finally says, what is going on with you, Elijah? And Elijah tells Haziel that you're going to end up killing Ben-Hadad. You're going to kill the king. And take over the throne. And then you're going to come against the children of Israel. And, and you're going to do terrible things. You're going to kill men and women and children and all these things. And dash them on the rocks. And in Second Kings chapter 8, in those verses I gave to you, it is Hazael that he would respond by saying, uh, you know, who do you think I am? A dog that he should do this gross thing? And Elijah said, the Lord has shown me that this is what's going to happen. And Hazael, he can't believe what Elijah had said. And he doesn't see himself as that evil. But Elijah says, this is from the Lord, and that you're going to do these evil things. We've been talking about the end of the age in Sunday morning, going through the Olivet Discourse. And we're going through, you know, the signs of the end, and talking about the Great Tribulation period, and the things that will take place. And you read that, you think, how can man come to that point where he would have destroyed himself? How can the world accept one who, who is going to be the Antichrist? We, we think, can we really get involved with that kind of evil as it's getting darker and darker and darker? But here's the thing, that any nation and any individual that gets away from the Lord, it gets darker and it gets darker and it gets darker. It just moves towards just more depravity. And the depravity of man is great. And we think that we can never do those evil things. Man is basically good. No, the Bible says that man is evil. And that's why we need Jesus, the Savior of the world, to be born again by the Spirit of God. So here's Hazael in that story of Second Kings chapter 8. He goes home. He tells the king, you're going to recover from your illness. But then the next day he takes you know, a wet cloth and he places it over the face of the king and kills him, just like Elijah said would happen. And then Hazael comes against Israel in that area of Gilead and did all those horrible things that we're told that he's going to do. And then the Assyrians, under the leader of Tiglath-Pileser, you read about him again in those historical books of Second Kings, conquered Syria and took them captive in about 732 B.C. You can read about that in Second Kings chapter 16. 
And about that same time, those two and a half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan River would actually go off into captivity as well. And then 10 years later after that, the rest of the house of Israel would go off into captivity by the Assyrians. It's interesting. I want to remind you, if you want to do some cross-reference, in Isaiah chapter 17, that you remember the proclamation against against Damascus in the book of Isaiah, that we're told that Damascus will be a ruinous heap and cease from being a city. So many believe that that has not been fulfilled yet because Syria boasts as being the, the longest, oldest, continuous city, not destroyed. Jerusalem is old as well. Jerusalem uh, has been around for over 3,000 years um, since the time of David, but Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt. We know that Jeremiah chapter 49 talks about fire uh, against Damascus. So many believe that perhaps that is an end-time fulfillment uh, that is yet to be fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 17, Jeremiah chapter 49. But this one was fulfilled uh, by the Assyrians in about 732 B.C. We continue with three transgressions, verse 6, of Gaza for four. I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour his palaces. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and the one who holds the scepter from Ascalon. And I will turn my hand against Ekron. These are cities, Ashdod, uh, Ascalon, Ekron, major cities of of the Philistines. We read about that as you study uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, the Philistines at the height of their uh, power always battling against Saul, against David as well. But the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So the area of the Philistines, which would war against Israel, um, is fulf- here this judgment fulfilled because there's no more Philistines and uh, they would end up being defeated. In verse 9, thus says the Lord God for the transgressions of Tyre. That's up north and Today what is Lebanon, and for four I will turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the, the covenant of brotherhood. You might want to take note of that there in verse 9. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. As we read this, Tyre is sent against God's people, like the Philistines. They did not... Uh, and they will receive the, the, the like judgment. And, and Nebuchadnezzar tried to, to come against Tyre, and um, he was frustrated because they moved off the coast. But then it was Alexander the Great that ended up building a causeway out there and taking over Tyre and, and, and destroying Tyre. But in verse 9, brotherhood here, as it is mentioned, because uh, they did not uh, remember the covenant of brotherhood, it is many that believe that perhaps it's speaking about the covenant that David made with Hiram. Remember when David was planning on building the temple? It was his son Solomon that actually built the temple. But it was David that got all the materials ready. And the king of Tyre was Hiram that loved David. And David, I believe, witnessed to him and made a covenant with him for the cedar logs up there in Lebanon. The, the cedar logs would be cut down. There was like, as you read uh, there in First Kings, the workers who 30,000 of them would go up and help them 
uh, logged those cedar trees. They would flow them down the coast of the Mediterranean to Joppa and then bring them up to Jerusalem for the building of the temple. So you broke this, this covenant, and, and it was Solomon who also made a covenant with Hiram, but it was David who was the one that was really close to him. So it's perhaps speaking of that, that you turned, you know, at one time you were allies, at one time you helped in the building of the temple, but you have broken that. And verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Here the Edomites uh, were actually, as most of you know, relatives of the Jews, descendants of Esau. Edom held on to his anger and wrath uh, like Esau did against his brother. And their anger was manifested towards God's people, and he judged them. And there's no more Edomites. In verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together. Thus says the Lord as we conclude chapter 1. So Ammon, which is in Jordan, um, uh, is the capital. Ammon today is the capital of Jordan today. I've been in Ammon, uh, Jordan. But Gilead uh, belonged to Israel and would be attacked by the Ammonites, who were very, very cruel, as we just read. And so judgment would come to them. And moving into chapter 2, we see this last judgment against Moab, trees transgressions, verse 1 of chapter 2. And 4, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime, and I will send a fire upon Moab. And it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all the princes with him, says the Lord. And so the last of the six judgments pronounced against these Gentile nations that surrounded Israel is Moab, uh, neighbors just east of the Dead Sea. Matter of fact, you can stand in Bethlehem and you can stand in Jerusalem on the very edge of Mount of Olives and you can look to the east and perhaps on a very clear day, you look down and there is the Jordan Valley, there is the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the face of the earth and then you see the mountains to the east and that's Moab and we would stay in a place near Bethlehem and taking a walk and you could look over there and that's where of course Ruth came from and you think about that story of Ruth that took place she was a Moabitess there in the Old Testament during the days of the judges and, and here at this time Moab was very vengeful um, and uh, you know burning the Edomite king with lime the body of it and so Nebuchadnezzar uh, would come during uh, that time where he is taking over the whole Middle East um, that he would ended up burning Moab and bringing judgment to them and so now we see that uh, this uh, same judgment formula is going to be applied to Judah this is the southern um, nation of God's people, which consisted, of course, Judah and Benjamin. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, 
I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And of course we know that it was Nebuchadnezzar that came and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But what really stuck out uh, with me, and perhaps as you read this, is because they despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Again, as we know, that it was in Hosea that said to the northern um, you know, ten nations that you are going to be destroyed because there's no truth. There's no truth that you're hanging on to. And what happens to a nation that forsakes the commandments of the Lord and despises the law of the Lord, it just leads to sin and darkness and deception and captivity and all those things. And it's true, and that's what God's Word says. And that's why we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray that the Lord um, will... Um, be merciful to us. We need to have a spiritual revival and turn to the Lord and turn back to the Word of God to guide us and direct us. We need God's help. And so what happens to a nation that, that forsakes the Word of God uh, and not keep His commandments? Their lies lead them astray. And that's what happens. The lies of the world, which is, you know, overseen and the world, the, the God of this age, little g, is Satan. And he is a deceiver. He's a liar is what Jesus called him. The father of lies. He's a destroyer. So it reminds us of that. And then judgment on Israel as we see uh, that they uh, have this pronouncement against them. For three transgressions, verse 6 of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink, of, uh, drink the wine of the uh, condemned in the house of their God. It's their God. I'm not, it's like I'm not your God. And as we see this, that judgment pronounced against Israel because of their prosperity, they turned from God and sought fulfillment by oppressing the people, living immoral. Uh, All kinds of injustice was taking place. Uh, Amazing how injustice is done against the poor uh, here and how the immorality um, was going on and uh, great immorality that was taking place. And you drink a wine of the condemned in the house of their God. That really sticks out at me. It's like it's their God. It's, it's you know, uh, the house of Israel because you've forsaken me. In verse 9, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And God recounting what he had done for his people. Now he defeated the enemies of of Israel, which was, you know, the Amorites, uh, part of the Canaanites uh, at the time of the conquest under Joshua. But here's the thing. Never forget what God has done for you. And that's why it's so important that we go back and remember how God has delivered us from the enemy, from the world, and has brought us into a new kingdom, the family of God, forgiven us. We're born again, you know, by the Spirit of God, a new creation in Christ. 
We should never forget that, what God has done for us. And that's why it's important that, that we, for example, uh, remember as we have communion, as we do it uh, monthly here at Calvary Chapel, coming to the communion table and remembering that, you know, Jesus who allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin in this new covenant helps us remember that every time we go to the Lord to thank him, to be thankful in everything. And it doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult times or hardships or challenges or any of those things or loss. But we can be thankful and to remember that God, what he has done for us in sending his son to die on the cross for us. And we have hope. We have an eternal hope that is ours. And as we see, as we continue, he, he also continues. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, verse 10, and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your younger men as Nazarites. It is not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord. He, he's saying, it's true, isn't it? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, do not prophesy. So this is what I did for you. I brought you into a good land, raised up the prophets to speak my word. Nazarites who would take a vow of consecrating themselves to the Lord, but you corrupted them. The Nazarite vow was they were not to, to take of any wine, but you gave them wine. You polluted them. And, and you told the, the prophets not to prophesy. In other words, we don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear truth. They would listen to the false prophets and the false teachers, but not truth coming from the Lord. And we see that today, that there are those who say, you Christians, be quiet. Don't tell me the gospel. Don't tell me that Jesus is the only way to the Father and for salvation. Don't tell me the truth of the Word of God. Don't want to hear it. We want to listen to all this false stuff. But we are to be true to the Word of God, just as Amos is being true to the message of God given to this nation. And he goes on and he says in verse 13, Behold, I am weighed down by you. A cart full of sheaves uh, is weighed down. This is weighing on me. He's brokenhearted. This isn't just an angry father, you know. This is a brokenhearted father. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the, the bow. A sh swift of foot shall not escape, sh nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. And the most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. So your strength and your prosperity will come to an end in this judgment against you. And let's move into chapter 3 as we read that here the word of the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The Lord, your God, has chosen you, we read um, from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people of the earth. And they were to be a witness to others, just as you and I are to be a witness, not only with the words that we speak, but the way that we live our lives. And we're not to be worldly. We're not to give a witness of, of depravity, uh, speak words that is false. Um, and so here he says that you're going to be punished for all your iniquities. In verse 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Uh, verse 3, walking with God means you agree with him. We follow him. We walk down the path he wants us to. Even in confession, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess means to be in agreement with. It's not making excuses. It's not, you know, saying, well, you know, it's not that bad. Or I guess, I'll, you know, I'm sorry. It's I'm in agreement, God, with you that you've said this is wrong. And we need to be in agreement with God in his ways and his word to walk with him closely. And then also, this is, this is something that we can apply in our own lives with the relationship to others. How can two walk together unless they are agreed? And so we need to, to as Christians, to agree that the word of God is true. For us to have strong fellowship, that God is good. That we're to pursue holiness and righteousness. So there is some, uh, you know, real um, wisdom in this um, when it comes to being yoked um, in business, when it comes to being yoked in relationships, whatever it might be. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? There's all kinds of application to be made here. And then we're going to see that God is going to, through Amos, ask some rhetorical questions with the answers being obviously no. And then the last verse, the response will be yes. And we see six no's and one yes here uh, as we read in verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. A lion roars. When you speak about the, the lion that roars because he caught the prey and he roars. No. Will a young lion cry out to his den if he's caught nothing? No. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? No. Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? No. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? No. If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? And the answer, of course, obviously is yes. And surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants and prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? And the Lord God has spoken, and who can but prophesy? And God warns us through his word given to us, and we're not to ignore it. And even that applies with how to live for him and what sin does to us, future prophecy, he warns us, so we will turn to him, so we can understand that this world is not going you know, to be our hope, that Jesus is our hope. And you might remember that when we're going through the book of Jeremiah, that he would say initially, as the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Remember Jeremiah, the people weren't listening. He said, I'm not going to speak anymore the word of God. But then he said, the word is like a burning fire shut up in me. So I want to encourage you here that, that as we grow in the word, that the Lord wants to use you to speak his word to others, to give truth to others, even when they're not listening, to continue to be one that walks in integrity, godly integrity and character and desiring to, to, to pursue righteousness so people can see that we're different than the world and to give truth with it as well. But we do read in verse 9, the punishment of Israel's sins speaking of, being spoken of here, that proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces of the land of Egypt and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst, and they oppress within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. So the state of violence of Israel, there was a lot of violence going on, injustice, you will have no strength. And again, it reminds us that that's what sin does. It just weakens you. It zappens you of your strength. And, and it just tears you down. And in verse 12, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces should be plundered. So we read about how the, uh, you know, uh, she'll be around you, your strength plundered. And, and then verse 12, that's verse 11. Verse 12, let's read that now. Thus says the Lord, a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear. So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. A shepherd had to show proof that a sheep was killed by a wild animal. So there'd be some remains uh, that would, uh, you remember when, uh, for example, Joseph uh, was thrown into a, a pit and sold into slavery. What Joseph's brothers did is they took an animal and put, you know, killed it and put blood on the coat to show evidence to dad, to Jacob, that yeah, this is what happened. He was killed by a wild beast. Well, a shepherd who's responsible for the sheep had to, to come up with evidence to show that he didn't steal the sheep. And God will leave some remains, um, you know, remnant of this uh, of His people. Um, but there's going to be remains uh, uh, in this judgment to show that He brought judgment. In verse 13, hear the testimony against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of Irie shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. So all the religious activities are going to end. Uh, false religious activity, your re- luxurious homes are going to come to an end as we finish here tonight. And we'll continue in chapter 4 as he gives this word. But once again, we're being reminded how important it is for us that we be looking to the Lord, keep the commandments of the Lord, pursuing the ways of the Lord that it may be well with us. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this teaching. We thank you for these chapters. These are lessons that are told to us over and over again. What sin does, it just brings captivity. It destroys. It deceives. And so, Lord, we want to be a people that we want to keep your word in our hearts and have it worked out in our lives. And, Lord, I just pray if there's any of us that you are warning us If there's something going on in our lives, sin or carnality of of any sort, um, that we would repent of it and turn to you and to your goodness. And Lord, that we would not ignore the word of God given to us, the commandments of God, the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because you want what is best for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the study. Pray you bless everyone here. And thank you that those who tuned in to continue studying God's word, I pray for blessing upon everyone. We look forward to meeting again on Sunday as we continue through the Olivet Discourse. And, Lord, just being encouraged of, of what is ahead for us <coughs> and as we talk about your return. So, again, we look forward to that time. And we just, uh, in the meantime, help us to walk in light and in truth. And Lord, be a witness to others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Hope to see you on Sunday.